This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Nature's Mentor, Wilderness Rights and Tracking with John Young. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is our closing episode for this first season of Life Worlds. And I just want to take a second to thank you all so much for how you've interacted with the show and for your comments and feedback. It's been really, really wonderful to hear from you. You've informed a lot of my direction for where I think the second season can take us. So stay tuned and you will hear from me soon when that will be. When I was designing the series, I thought it would be a fitting closure to end with a conversation about nature connection mentorship and rites of passage. You've heard from so many voices in previous episodes on how they've learned to listen deeply to the land and voices around them. Today, to end this season, we're going to get into the how and how you can embark on this journey in a very intimate and personal way. Life worlding starts in the body. It starts with core skills that used to be central to pretty much all human cultures across time. These are ways of being in the body and in the land, sometimes in solitude for many days on end. Strangely, this should be basic stuff. And yet our modern world has rendered this knowledge practically extinct, or at the least, paints it all as rather exotic or primitive. There was a time in which the land spoke vividly to each and every one of us. Every snap twig on a trail, every odor on the breeze, every utterance from a bird's beak, they would all be harboring a message, guiding you through the undulations of a savanna or a steep canyon. The stakes being nothing else but your survival, your family's meal for the week, your escape from the jaws of a tooth predator. Imagine the heightened electric body of yours that would be pulsing through that land. Our homo sapien brains, our neuronal pathways, jolted and fused and tenderly sprouted new branches every time our eyes scanned the complexity of a living world, trying to make sense of its miraculous expressions. This is a world I long to come home to, again and again and again. Now, I have to admit to you that a decade ago, bird language, solos in the land, tracking animal footprints, stooping down excitedly to inspect scat, uh, that is animal poop, even myth-telling, these things were just not part of my world. And now, they are the very things that keep me alive and keep me strong. I went on my first vision quest last summer, caught between thunderstorms and dust storms, alone, fasting in the land, caked in mud without a tent, howling and throwing boulders off cliff tops in the dazzling ochre New Mexico desert. Yeah, something visceral and untranslatable happened to me out there. When I peeled away distractions and shed away domestication, life became crystal clear. There was a sheer simplicity and poetic resonance to everything. No boundary between myself and world. You'll hear from John Young, who is a renowned elder and a pioneer in the fields of nature-based education, wildlife tracking, bird language, and I can attest firsthand, a master storyteller. John's two books, What the Robin Knows, How Birds Reveal the Secrets of the Natural World, and Coyote's Guide to Connecting to Nature, both sit proudly on my bookshelf, tattered and dog-eared, having guided me on many an adventure. John will describe the ancient art of nature connection mentoring and the eight shields model that he developed. He will also bring us into delightful tales from his time spent living amongst the sand bushmen of Southern Africa and his love for bird language and 
the appearance in his life of a friendly turkey named Pete. You're in for a treat. And so without further ado, over to John. Let's kick off and get right into it. We're going to be speaking a lot today about nature connection and nature connection mentoring. For people who have no clue what mentoring might mean in that context, could you describe a little bit about what that term refers to and the kind of work that you've been doing for over 40 years? You know, mentoring is a word that's thrown around a lot in modern times, and it's rare to find people who fully get the power of it. The word mentoring is like a keyhole. And if you go through that keyhole, you find a whole universe. So you could talk for months about mentoring and never exhaust the subject. I think it's really important to clarify the difference between teaching and mentoring. I was in a conference where the organizer had pulled together people who had mentoring in common. They had been mentored as young people and threw us all in a big room in Seattle and had 75 of us figure out what we all had in common and the one thing we all agreed on was that mentoring was not about if I'm an expert on something, it's not about my expertise. It's about me pulling the light out of the person that I'm mentoring. And it has nothing to do with my expertise. It, it isn't about me as the teacher. It's about me helping that person grow into the fullest version of themselves. If I came from architecture and I'm mentoring someone, they may go into finance and that's just fine. You know, it's not like I'm trying to get them to be an architect. It's basically a person who supports you and often is teaching you the ropes of that business culture or that particular vocational pathway. But mentoring is different. And like I said, that's the one thing we all agreed on, that mentoring is about bringing out the light in the other. And it's not about us conferring our expertise on them. So that gets confused because most people in modern times, their only experience is an expertise being conveyed through teaching. And teaching and mentoring are both important. Mentoring is virtually extinct on our planet in modern times, which is a terrible, sad loss, really. People don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they're missing it because they haven't experienced it. But when you go through the keel mentoring, then you have to like think about what's on the other side of that. And you asked me about nature connection mentoring. Nature connection mentoring is probably the oldest form of mentoring because you have to see that for at least 200,000 years, humans have been in the modern form, right? And of course, now we're even more modernized. You know, now we're technologically modernized, but, you know, modern humans, the pattern of life in traditional regenerative cultures, such as the San Bushman that I spent a lot of time with, you know, everybody grows up in a mentoring environment. If a culture is a bunch of Legos that build out a, a world around us, each Lego is mentoring, right? The smallest unit of culture is a mentoring relationship. And once that's gone, it's very difficult to get it back. You know, that's what I do is I, I work with people who are committed to mentoring and wanting to bring it back, which means for them, they have to go on a remedial journey. Literally, they have to go back, recover the mentoring skills, which are also really linked to the way our nervous system works. So when you facilitate the relationship long enough, then the mentoring instincts kick back in because I really think they're hardwired into us. But because of all the different things we experience in modern life, we sort of get trained away from that, right? We develop all these adaptive strategies so we can live within these educational structures and life structures that modern life brings us. So nature connection mentoring is probably the oldest form of mentoring, and I see it as a very powerful form of mentoring. You know, it's a terrible metaphor, but it's one that people can understand. You're born with an operating system, right? And you've got all these potential software platforms that could run within that operating system. And they're never activated, you know, you never activate them because mentoring is required to open these things up. But when they open up, they literally open like a flower and they expand your sensitivity and your connection with everything around you in this profound way. The results of that are that we develop a more connected relationship with life where we see ourselves as part of the earth. We don't 
think of the earth as something outside of us. We feel that we live within it, you know, within the field of it, the energy of it, right? But the Nature Connection mentoring journey is something that if you were born into a culture like the San Bushman, literally everybody who's older than you is your mentor because every one of those people grew up in a mentoring environment. They were immersed in it. They all have the instincts to mentor you. So every child is raised with the understanding that when they're out on the land, they are responsible to pay attention to what's going on around them, what they hear, what they see, what they feel inside, what they smell, what they touch. They're responsible to gather that because that information that they're gathering from the land does not belong to them. It belongs to the village. So when you, you know, your grandmother's picking berries off this bush and you're a little kid and you're crawling around under the bush and uh, you're always close to your grandmother or your mom when you're out there gathering food because hyenas, leopards, poisonous snakes, the kids can't get too far away. The women will spread out. They always know where each other is, right? They're always really tuned into each other. But this one child is with the grandmother and she crawls underneath this bush that the grandmother's picking berries from, and she finds the track of a small antelope called the stienbuck, which is a really important animal to the bushman. Grandmother doesn't see those tracks because she's not crawling under the bush. The girl comes out, she tells her grandmother what she saw, what she heard, what she felt, you know, and she brings that story back. And now grandma knows, oh, there's a stienbuck here, and the tracks are fresh. So when the village comes together that night, all the kids have told their parents and grandparents what they've been seeing. And all the parents and grandparents come around and they share all with each other. And they share this collective ecological knowledge from the day. Somebody was two miles over that way. Someone was five miles over that way. But now the whole story comes together. And who around that fire isn't invested in every single story? Everybody wants to hear what each other saw and experienced. And they're so good at this. So the responsibility is we are all tracking. The story doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the village. We are all sharing our story back. And then at night, they dance the story around the fire. There's this in-breath, out-breath. And it's information, but it's more than information. They're steeped in this from childhood. So by the time they get to be elders, their knowledge of place is off the charts. It's unbelievably rich. But it isn't just information that's going on here, because each of these relationships that you form, the child forms a relationship with the scorpion, with this particular bush that gives these delicious berries, the velvet raisin bush. They learn that the pied babbler, which is a bird, makes this call that tells them when the lions are on the move. Through all of these shared stories, they learn but they also build relationships. And what they say is that when we first make that relationship with another being, it's a thread that forms between us. And if we see that same being, and I'm not talking about the same species, I'm talking about that individual being. So like here in our yard, we have this one turkey who comes through every day, a couple times a day with his little friend. The two of them hang out. They're two males. He's kind of mentoring this younger turkey along. They're about two years apart. This one guy's five years old and the other one's three years old. The bigger one, we named him Pete. So when I say that being, I'm talking about Pete, right? And I'm using this example of this uh, very real bird that lives in the area around my home. First day we saw Pete, there was a thread there, right? But now we've been living here for a year and a half and we see him almost every day. There's a couple months in the year where the turkeys all go somewhere else. I don't know where they go, but then they come back again. I now have a rope with Pete, you know, like the thread over time became a string, became a cord, became a rope. And what that means is that, for instance, yesterday I was sitting out on my patio and I heard Pete make a particular sound. And because of my bond with him, I pay attention to that. It's like if your child makes a sound, you're going to pay attention to that because you have a bond with your child. Whereas if you're out in the park and a child makes a certain sound, you pay no attention to it. You have no bond there. Unless, of course, they're screaming and they really need help. Then you recognize that. But these little communications are very subtle. And so if, if you don't have that bond, you're not paying attention. But that little sound that Pete made caught my attention. I said, what's the matter? And then I noticed all the baby turkeys suddenly flushed and flew up into a tree that little sound he made was a warning that the other turkeys understood. 
And I turned and looked to my right, and there was a coyote standing 20 feet away, just standing in the grass looking at me. This is an example of how these ropes, as the Bushmen say, there's energy that flows through the ropes and they can be pulled in either direction. Pete can tug on me, I can tug on Pete. So I think people can relate to this kind of bonding when they think about pets. We develop these extraordinary bonds with pets. And that means a lot to people in modern times because sometimes they're the only healthy bonds we have. You know, the other human bonds aren't even as good as what we have with our pet. Well, just imagine if you had that kind of bond with all of the trees and all of the birds and all of the animals, the stars, the wind, the rain, the cycles of the moon, the sun, the earth, the soil itself, the sand, the clay. You know, that's what the Bushmen say. This is what it means to be Bushmen. We make ropes with everything. Let's delve into the difference that you would experience if you were being mentored into this rope-making connection with other living beings versus if you're being taught by someone to connect with nature, quote unquote, what would be your felt experience as the receiver of either mentorship or a teaching relationship? Well, if I'm in a mentoring relationship with someone, I'm basically doing for them what was done for me. And the reason I have the ability to mentor is because when I was a child, my father's ancestors emigrated from Ireland during the potato famine. They all enclaved in a rural area of New Jersey, and they stayed there for multiple generations. So there was like, there wasn't a lot of blending outside the community, right? The Irish stayed with the Irish. So the culture stayed alive there. The mentoring stayed alive there. When my mother's ancestors came over from Poland and Lithuania, they settled in farm country, not far from where Irish Town was. And that's what that little village was called, Irish Town. They stayed together. All these different Polish and Lithuanian families farmed around each other. And when you look at the old photographs, there's like 25 people in every picture, you know, they're absolutely bonding, right? So when I was a little boy, my grandmother on the Irish side taught me to read from field guides, the little nature guides, the golden guides. But she would send me out. She'd say, oh, look, this frog on the range map, this frog lives here. Have you ever seen it? And I said, well, yeah, I know where that frog lives. She says, oh, well, you go catch that frog for me and bring it back and show it to me because I'd really like to see it. You know, so this is a classic grandmother mentoring thing going on here. So out I go, I find the frog, I get it in a bucket and I bring it back to her. And then we make a little terrarium for it. And we give it a name and I'm allowed to keep it for a couple of days. And if it, I can't figure out what it eats and if it doesn't eat, I have to bring it right back to where I got it from. But I have to give it a name. So as you can see, she's building that rope with me, right? But when I come back from catching the frog, I have to tell her the whole story. And when I tell her the story, she gets curious about pieces of the story. And she asks me questions. Then now I have to go back and live that story anew in my mind. I have to go back there and look around for what my grandmother's asking because I didn't notice it when I was there. Now I'm trying to go back and recover that, that which I didn't pay attention to when I was at the frog pond. So when I come back to my present state, I'm like, I, I didn't notice Nanny, you know? And she says, well, maybe you can go back there tomorrow and check for Grant Nanny, you know? So she's sending me, back out to fill in my blind spots. This is classic nature connection mentoring, right? My great aunt was just like that too. So, you know, whether I was with my grandmother on the Irish side or my great aunt on the Polish side, they were both doing that, each in their own style. Great aunt Carrie, she would get me to listen. She had broken English. She was born in Poland. We would walk for hours along the bay in this wild area along Island Beach State Park. And she wouldn't say one word to me. Everything was squeeze my hand if she wanted me to pay attention, gesture with her chin towards what she wants me to pay attention to. And in silence, we would watch the gull throw its head back and sing. And I could feel her bond and love for that magical moment conveying to me. I loved spending time with her. It was always in silence. And she would, when we got back to the house, she would tell me that the birds can talk to us and tell us things, you know. And she would tell me stories about that. She had this very deep spiritual relationship with the earth. 
my grandmother had a very practical relationship with the earth, you know, like the hunter gatherer kind of energy, right? Go gather these berries, bring them back for nanny. I'll make a pie. When I was older, go catch some fish and bring them back and I'll cook them for dinner. This is mentoring in childhood, right? And then when I work with adults, I realize that they'd never had that very, very basic bonding with place guided by a grandmother. And it's the kind of thing that little kids just instinctively want to do. So when you're working with an adult, I mean, you can talk theory about nature connection all day and it doesn't do a thing. The trickiest part is to get an adult to go back and relive the childhood they didn't get because you can't skip that. There's primary nervous system relationships that form as we build relationships with the frogs and the trees and the birds and the animals that forms a neural network. And that neural network has a emergent property that you can't fake. You know what I mean? It's going to emerge out of the built relationships. All those bonds are giving information in both directions. The sphere of awareness grows around us. You know, so when you're mentoring adults who haven't been mentored as children, you basically have to find an adult way to make it palatable, but get them to relive experiences that they didn't get in childhood to build those basic neuromuscular pathways and get that software to open that was never opened. They got the operating system, but they never opened the software that runs it. So that's what we're doing. And we're doing it through questioning. It sounds to me like this mentorship capability, it grants a lot of agency and a lot of equality, actually, between whoever may be the mentor and the mentee. And it's saying, you know this, go out, find it, return, like speak, share, versus I am going to tell you what this is. And so you're activating that sensory awareness, that curiosity in that little kid or that adult that's going out because they have to come back with something. It's not going to be given to them. I'd love to talk about the Eight Shields Institute and school that you set up because you took observations and teachings from many different ancient cultures and, and your own grandparents and elsewhere. And you combined it into this model that was how to bring someone through a wheel, seasons, natural flows, and how to work with mentorship and also with these other cycles to cultivate the missing nature connection that people never got. Maybe you could speak a little bit to Eight Shields and what it is. Well, Eight Shields started back in the early 1980s. There was an elder that had grown up with the Bushmen and the Akamba in East Africa. He was born in South Africa, moved to East Africa. And there was no other European neighbors near for 28 miles. And his only playmates growing up were the African children. So he was literally adopted in and raised with the Akamba people. And he was fluent in Kikamba and Swahili and some Bushman dialects, but he really identified with that culture. When he looked at my research, because I just finished my research at university and came out with this whole map that I had created, and I mapped it out using Roman numerals because it was an outline and that was the form that I took it in. And when I showed him the research and told him what I wanted to do, I basically wanted to recapitulate the kind of mentoring I got as an early child from my grandmothers and then the mentoring I got when I was older from Tom Brown, who is an absolute master mentor. I'm still working with Tom. It's 51 years later and we're still in that relationship, which is extraordinary. I mean, it really is. I, I don't take that for granted. Of course, I help teach with him, but he's still in that relationship with me. He still asks me questions that I can't answer that pull me into another bigger version of myself. So I told this elder who the Akamba named Ngao, but the Zulus named him Ingwe when he moved back to South Africa. So he, Ingwe stuck, okay, Ingwe. Ingwe means the leopard. And after he passed away, this little memorial was made for Ingwe. Incredible elder, already in his 70s and had this profound understanding of this mentoring pathway. And when he looked at all my research, he said, look at all this beautiful, sacred stuff that you've gathered, all these principles from all over the world, from your Irish ancestors, you know, from all over the world, you found the patterns that all humanity has in common. And look at how you organized it. You organized it with Roman numerals. And he says, don't you realize, John, it was the Romans who caused this problem in the first place. <laughs> we can't honor the Romans. He said, we must find a way to organize this information using the four directions. And he said, but it can't be 
the way of the Apaches or the way of the Lakota or even the way of the Irish because it, it has to transcend all of that. And we have to figure out how to do that. We can't use one cultural way of doing it. I said, how are we going to do that? He said, well, let's just ask the children. So we went to classroom after classroom and we asked the children, what does it feel like at sunrise? And they, in their very innocent way, described sunrise as a feeling. And then what does midday feel like? And what does sunset feel like? And then we asked the older kids, what does midnight feel like? And we built a map based on the descriptions, primary relationship descriptions of children innocently expressing that. And we eventually worked it down, worked it down until we came up with these archetypal feelings in each of the directions. And we knew that east, the sun rises in the east here in the northern hemisphere, and then it moves towards the south at midday, and then it moves towards the west at midnight. And therefore, we can't see it, but it's moving to the north at night, and then it's coming back to the east in the morning. And so we decided that we would start with these four directional categories. And then Ingwe added the sky, what's above us, and the earth, what's below us. We signed them all feelings. So they became like boxes, you know, instead of Roman numeral one, letter A. Now this thing goes in the box called East. So what would we find in East if we were unboxing East right now? What would be inside of it? Are these practices? Are they rules? Yes, the practices, principles, agreement fields, the categories. There's multiple strands on each of the petals of that flower. And in the beginning, we called it six shields and then very much crowdsourcing from the beginning. Well, I traveled around the world and shared these principles, these activities, these errands. I mean, literally, there's one subcategory, which is the role that a person would play in the village. If you're a child, you have a role to play. If you're an older child, you have a different role to play. When you're a teen, you have a different role to play. So there's roles that are associated with your stage of life and your age. Then there are errands that you go on. Go out and catch that frog for nanny and bring it back and we'll give it a name. Go gather those berries, bring it back. Then there's techniques and skills that go with that petal. And then there are attributes that reflect your nervous system development, essentially, really. It's the best way to put it because you're on your way to wanting to have the highest expression of that attribute in each of these pedal categories. And then, then there's a mentoring technique that goes, or multiple mentoring techniques that go to help bring that skill across or to help inspire that errand, to help support that role. Then there's cultural elements, agreement fields that we all share. We're all swimming in agreement fields all the time. When you walk into your gym that you have a membership to, you're walking into agreement fields that were put in place when you signed up for your membership, right? So you're always going from one agreement field to another. What we do is we look at the agreement fields that support connection. And that's what the cultural elements are bringing. So for instance, in the East, the cultural element of the East is welcoming. You know, welcoming the day, welcoming the sunrise, welcoming all possibility, but truly welcoming, like being very present with the other you know, making eye contact, not having a bunch of thoughts in our head and all the things on our list that we have to do. Oh my gosh, the event's starting. I can't really pay attention to these people. No, 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 no. Welcoming. The role of welcoming will put a person in the role of the East at events. And their job is to have no logistics whatsoever, but to stand in the parking lot and greet people when they come in. And then as people get their stuff out of the car and start walking towards the event, they run into other people who are on the East team who welcome them and help them carry their stuff, show them around and, and so on. So welcoming is a really, really important way to start a container of an event, you know, that's going to have a beginning, a middle and an end. But the East people will be welcoming every morning. They'll be welcoming people back from lunch. You know, so this feeling of welcoming starts to spread through the whole event. And that's just an example, right? So it became kind of fun, but there, there was probably 40 or 50 people who helped around the world crowdsource this thing and make it work locally, right? You would have a really good time if you went over to the Wilderness School of the Alps just outside of Innsbruck in Austria and experienced one of their mentoring events. You would be really, really impressed. And you'll see that these are principles to design shared social environments 
to help reboot connection and mentoring. That's where eight shields came from. It started at six, but we added two more shields because the crowdsourcing, somebody said, this looks unbalanced. It needs something up here. And there's something missing in the Northwest and the Southeast. So I drew a line and put two more petals. Somebody else raises their hand. What do they mean? I'm like, I don't know. I just drew them, right? So then we went around the world to all the different people who were working with these principles and asked them what they thought it meant until we crowdsourced out what the Northwest and the Southeast was. That's where it came from, right? So it's not something that I created. I organized my research using that and continue to, but the H. Shields Institute closed at the beginning of the pandemic. I had left the H. Shields Institute back in February of 2019 to pursue a project called Connection First which is building a very intentional membership around commitment to mentoring. That's where all my energy is going. And then mapping out all 512 of the principles that are on the eight pedals so that it can be passed on in an orderly way. Because if you only get one mentoring technique and you go home and work with that, you're going to grow out to a place and you're going to need the next mentoring technique to catch you there and pull you to the next place. And when you get to that place, so you, they're not static. You know, mentoring, like I said, it's a keyhole. So the mentoring of a three-year-old is different from a 10-year-old, from a 15-year-old, from a 20-year-old, from a 40-year-old, from a 60-year-old. The mentoring shifts as you age and stage. So it's important that this gets codified in a sense that we don't lose it because in modern times, people have no idea how to put it back once it's been lost. And it's very challenging. It may be an obvious question, John, but why does it matter to have these wheels and these principles and these 512 different practices? And why does this matter in today's world and in other worlds from previous times? But I think especially today's world. God, there's a thousand ways to answer that. But I will start by saying there was this one consultant, brilliant consultant who helped us for three and a half years, who observed that the children that grew up with this mentoring model were wholesome, they were happy, they were vital, they were very much themselves, really full of spark in life and interest in things. They were empathetic. They had this extraordinary capacity to listen. They were not distracted when you were speaking to them. They were holding space, you know. So this man's in his sixties and he's talking to these people in their early twenties and he's it's like, where did these people come from? You know, and he went all around the world and visited all these different locations where these principles landed all over German speaking countries and all over North America. And he said, it's remarkable. All the children who grew up with this have a wholesomeness and a health and empathy. And, you know, as he began talking to them, he began to discover that when these kids were in high school, when their friend was suicidal, they were the ones who kept them from making a choice that would take them that way and brought them back from anxiety. And like, so they're already reaching out and helping and healing their peers. So just already that right there is enough. But every single one of them has grown into these powerful leaders. Like they're all thought leaders in their own right. And they have this tremendous commitment to taking care of the earth and the future generations, right? So in that story, isn't there's enough, right? But I've worked with so many adults who over five, six years mentoring them have watched them go on the same journey where they shifted from, you know, recycling sort of to becoming activated within five or six years. Where, and I never tell them, you need to become an activist for the earth. I never say that. I never tell them that. As you said, agency. One of the agreement fields is what we call the culture of allowance, that everybody is free to make their own choices here. We're just going to support their choices and ask reflective questions so that they can really think about the implications of the choices that they're making. But we're not challenging their choice. We're challenging them to think for themselves and to use all their awareness and connection to make really well-informed choices. Well, if you do that with people long enough, and then they start connecting to the earth in the way that I was talking about, that remedial way, packaged for adults. Well, don't you know, all of a sudden their hearts open and they become really empathetic. And all of a sudden they start to say, oh my God, this earth is so beautiful. This earth is so magical. And it's such a gift to be alive. It's a gift to be alive. It's a blessing. And boy, the children of the future, they need this as much as I have nourished from this. I need to do everything in my power in my life to influence for a better world in the future. You know, those two different stories, people 
becoming more wholesome and caring people for each other, finding their own path, activating their own genius, and caring about the future and really shouldering up and doing things. They're not just recycling anymore. You know, they're finding ways to change systems and structures that could benefit the earth. So what if we could get all 9 billion people into a five-year program? You know, what would happen? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's such a gap between telling people that we're experiencing these massive traumatic global events and you should love the earth and you should care and you should and you should and you should and you should versus, okay, but then how do those people who are receiving all that information actually come at it from a place of excitement and care and genuine love and curiosity and so that these practices, these teachings, these mentorships are ways that you can bridge just information overload, inertia and paralysis with a very embodied, intuitive, as you said, like neurologically hardwired into us way of responding that will be unique to every single individual. I think that's it's a really beautiful way of, of looking at the original etymology of education, which is educare, right? Is to draw out. It is that mentorship aspect of which you spoke. And it, there's this basic education that we should have as kids and definitely as adults, if you know we're leaders or heading up important quote-unquote initiatives. So I don't know if that resonates, but it seems to me that that's kind of what you're speaking to. Yeah, that is what I'm speaking to. That was well said. You know, within the modern education system, we do four years and we're out. Okay, I studied chemistry. I did that class. I'm done. With connection mentoring, it's a lifelong path. It never ends. Like you never master the ropes with the universe. The universe is too big. And every day there's new ropes to be built. And so every day is an adventure. People call it lifelong learning, but it's more than that. There's a core essence of us as human beings that is activated when we activate that sensory connection. And when those threads turn to cords, turn to ropes, there's like an internal power. The Bushmen say the ropes are made of love. And I, I think that's really what it is. We grow this enormous capacity to love and care. That's ultimately the benefit of this. So what's the role of wildlife tracking and also bird language and all of this, you know, and never mastering the ropes of the universe, but starting to extend your tendrils out into the world? Why have you also engaged in wildlife tracking and written a phenomenal book on bird language? Are birds our mentors? Are you mentoring with the birds? Definitely. The wonderful thing about the birds is that they're all around us and they don't charge anything for us to learn from them. All we have to do is make the time to build the threads into cords, into ropes. I look at the last 40 years of, of my uh, work and research and constantly testing stuff with people, right? Constantly. I want this to improve. Okay, this took way too long. How can we make this move a little faster, right? Because some of this stuff, really, literally, I'm mentoring somebody for eight years before they have a breakthrough. You know, the only place you see that anymore is like in martial arts, where you go to the same dojo and you have the same master for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. It's one of the last vestiges of that kind of long-term commitment. We've just gathered a lot of case studies around all of this. And two people start at the same time and they go on this journey together. And of course, you know, one's going this way, one's going that way. But you can see comparatively, you know, after five years, how this one has rocketed ahead in connection compared to this one. And you start to look around the world and you see all the people who have rocketed ahead and you kind of gather them together and you talk about what are their practices? What are they doing you know, on a day-to-day -day basis? And you come to find out that they almost always have tracking and bird language in common. So you start asking, well, why is that? And I ask the Bushmen, I'm like, why is that? I tell them that story. And they're like, of course. I'm like, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, tracking is what we were born to do. We were born to track. And it, it isn't just the hunters who track. The hunters get all the attention in the realm of tracking, but the women are formidable trackers also. And they have to be. They have to care for the children. And the women, their knowledge of bird language is unbelievable. And it's so nuanced. Like the men don't care if that alarm means a mongoose. The men don't care if that alarm means a snake. 
the women care because they have to keep the kids safe. And they have to know the difference between a mongoose alarm and a poisonous snake alarm because it could cost their child's life. So they take it very seriously, right? And they raise the children with extraordinary knowledge of bird language. But what does that do? I had asked the ladies, why are your children so unbelievably attentive and aware of bird language? Because I work with families all over the modern world who try to raise their children with bird language awareness. And they're kind of good at it, not so good at it. You get this situation where I'm standing outside and there's a bunch of modern children around me and maybe I'm in the UK or maybe I'm over in Australia or maybe I'm here in the US and it's a bird language workshop, right? And the kids are present and I'm listening to a bird alarm and I'm watching these kids and the bird alarm's going off right over there and I'm watching the children, I'm just smiling and they can start to feel that I'm up to something, right? And then they're looking at me and they're like, what are you looking at? And why are you looking at us? And then one of the kids goes, oh, the eyebrows go up and then turns and looks at the bird alarm. So now he's smiling and he's got his arms folded all smug. And then another kid is like, why is he smug? You know, and then, oh, 30 seconds later, some of the kids are waking up out of their days and saying, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) You know, well, what if that was a lion charging? What would happen in 30 seconds if the lion was charging? The slow ones would be polished off. Exactly. So, you know, I said to the ladies, why? Are your kids so unbelievably attentive to bird language? Because here I'm standing with all these little Kalahari kids, all these little Bushman children. A bird alarm goes off all of their heads like that instantly, right? And they're like three and five. And I'm just like, what? They're like like superhuman powers for awareness. How did you do this? Like, I need to know. Tell them about the kids in America. And they laugh. You know, they just think it's really funny. But at the same time, they said, tonight, we'll show you tonight. And I'm like, show me tonight. So later that night, Franz, the translator, comes in, he gets me and he says, hey, the ladies want you to come over here to a fire. There's the village fires burning over here, but there's a little fire burning off to the side. And I'm like, why? He said, something you asked them today, they said that they're going to show you now. I said, oh, wow, cool. So I go over to this fire, right? And uh, the ladies are dropping the babies off and the little kids. It's like a kid's program, Kalahari style. And all these children are being dropped off. So it's all the children from maybe like 11 down to like three. And they're all sitting around this little fire. And they're all sitting there in anticipation. Their eyes are big and they're looking around. They're just sitting really still. And the moms have all walked away. So up to the fire walks the elder Hanama. And he gets to the fire. And this is all in Bushman Francis translating. And the Hanuma goes to the children. He holds his hands like this. He makes eye contact with every one of them with a big smile on his face, with this big beaming loving energy. He says, a long time ago, the lions ate a lot of us. And then he pauses and again, makes eye contact with all of them. And then he says, they ate a lot of us. And then he smiles, looks at all of them and walks away. And then the ladies come and pick the kids up and go off. And I'm like, what was that? And Franz is like, I don't know. You know, they wouldn't talk to me that night because when the fire's lit and the stories are gone and everyone's having a good time, they're not going to, you know, break it down for me. But the next day they broke it down for me. You know, that's all they have to do. Because a long time ago, the lions ate a lot of us. There's nothing that compares for these modern children I mean, God forbid, I mean, like you can't compare it to like school shootings or global warming. Like these are big, hairy, psychic, scary things, whereas a lion is a real thing, you know. And the next day we go out with these families and there's lion tracks, you know, just outside the village. Right. So tracking in bird language. So that's a lion track. That child sees a lion track. That's not like a fantasy monster. That's a being that they share space with, and they're out gathering food where the lions are. The Bushmen always know where the lions are because they pay such attention to the interspecies communication of the birds and the animals. The mammals need to know where that lion is. So they're always paying attention, you know, like Pete with the coyote yesterday, little subtle signals that they have to be constantly tuned to. And then when they're hearing the different sounds, then they have to look for the track and sign to know 
you know, you may not see who's making the alarm, but you'll certainly find the tracks. So you have to couple bird language and tracking. And that just causes your awareness to go out. In America, you don't have the threats of these lions that might come any moment. How has it changed you and how has it changed the people that you've worked with to become aware of bird language? How does it alter your experience of being out in the world? And by the way, maybe we should even define a little bit what bird language is, because we're talking about as if everyone knows what bird language is. And they, okay, you mean birds chattering away to each other? You know, is that what bird language is? Yeah, you know, I say bird language, but the gray squirrel, the chipmunk will also be part of that. So it's mostly the birds, but there are mammals that enter into it. So let's let's start there. So bird language, what is it? Birds talk to each other constantly during daylight. We can understand it and it's fun. That's bird language. You're asking me like, what effect did bird language have on me? Well, Tom Brown's mentor was an Apache elder and the Apaches were known as scouts. They had this extraordinary awareness. And I don't know what you know about the history of the Apache wars in the US, but the cavalry could not catch the Apaches. They had to finally do some really dark things to get the Apaches to surrender. Like, I won't go into the details, but the Apaches were unstoppable in their own country because from the youngest age, children were put out to sit on the land and to pay attention. And at the end of the day, they came back in and they sat with their elders and the elders asked them questions. What did you see? What did you hear? Does this sound familiar? Just like the Bushmen, right? But they had to develop facility and acuity with bird language and animal language because they knew where their enemies were, like the cavalry, when they were still two miles away based on what the birds and animals told them. They had that level of sophistication of bird and animal language, and that's why they could disappear, and that's why they were uncatchable. Bushmen, the same. You know, they know when somebody's coming from miles away, and it's all because layer upon layer upon layer of nuanced understanding of these patterns of communication keeps them safe. You need to know where the lion is so that you can gather food with the children, you know, a half a mile away from that place. (laughs) So you have to know where the lion is unerringly. They're not playing around because it's not fun for the ladies to be out with children and elders and run into lions. That doesn't go well. So they just don't let it happen. And the way they don't let it happen is that they have early warning and they have a sophisticated understanding of the bird and animal language so they can pinpoint the lion confidently. And uh, I went around with Franz. We went to these five different lady groups gathering food. And I said to them, where's the nearest lion? And the lady's digging with her stick and she just puts her hand up like casually. And she just starts saying, like this, doesn't even look, just points. And then goes back to digging like it's nothing, right? We go to the next group of ladies, same exact response, point exactly in the same direction. And I said, Franz, are they saying the same thing? He says, John, they're saying all these ladies have said the same thing. I said, do you know how far away it is? He says, I have a sense it's about 10 minutes walking in that direction. I said, can we go? And he said, it's a lion, John. (laughs) I'm like, well, can we go closer? He said, yes, we'll go closer, but we won't go all the way. I'm like, of course, I don't want to walk up to the lion. So we go walking in that direction. We walk about seven, eight minutes in the direction the ladies pointed, and we start picking up fresh lion tracks. And he said, are you satisfied? I said, yes, and let's get back to the ladies. It's safer over there, you know. I mean, do you understand how important that is? They cannot make a mistake. It's not recreational. It has to be unerring. It strikes me that our bodies are incredibly overloaded today with so much information coming in, right? From our technological devices, from just pollution everywhere, noise pollution, visual pollution. Does heightening our sensitivity and our awareness to the natural world feel different to that? Does it feel like overload where all of a sudden you're picking up on everything and it's so much, I don't know how to process it. You know, I can imagine someone listening and they're like, gosh, I'm already overloaded by the world. Why would I want to add to that by suddenly hearing everything the birds are saying and freaking out that someone's coming out from over there. Like, is it desirable to add more? It's uh, apples and oranges. The quality of information coming from this 
is not the same. Sometimes it's downright painful to read an article, right? And I don't mean like it's emotionally painful, but it's just like, oh, I wish you would just say it more simply or whatever. You know, you're just like, this is painful to try to read this. I want this information, but it's, I'm having a hard time. It never feels that way. There's no such thing as disinformation or misinformation or even interpretation. What that black-headed grosbeak is saying is pure and it's true in the spirit of that bird in that moment. The birds do not lie. They don't fabricate. They don't interpret. They express purely. Your nervous system nourishes from that like a vitamin. Like nature to your nervous system is a vitamin. And it's a very wholesome vitamin. Information is not like that. Information, it can almost be toxic. As you already described, information overload, it's like a sickness, and it really is. You don't get that from nature. It does not happen. It doesn't happen. Your body's just like, thank God, finally. It's like you've been thirsty all your life, and you finally get to drink clean, cool, pure water. How good that tastes. That's what nature is to us. Okay, another thing, I mean, I keep leaning on these Bushmen, but that's okay. They said to me, John, tell our stories. We want you to tell our stories. It's not like I'm taking the stories from them. They say, no, 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 you must tell our stories. And then maybe people will come visit us, (laughs) he says. But imagine growing up in a world where when you were a child, the elders are saying to you, there's only two creations, first creation and second creation. What is first creation? Everything that was here on the earth and the stars and the sun and the moon before humans showed up. And when we showed up, we were also first creation. Inside of us, there is first creation. This is what you're hearing since you're a little child over and over and over again. Now, second creation, anything that comes through a human mind, a belief system, a tool that we make, the clothes, they would point to my iPhone and say, this thing that you carry, second creation. And then they say, all the troubles we experience as human beings comes from second creation. I heard him telling this around the fire. And then I asked, well, what about a lion? I mean, you guys are so like hypervigilant about lions. seems like a first creation problem to me. (laughs) They said, no. Because a lion is a lion, and we have ropes with that lion. We have understanding of what that lion is and how it behaves because it's a lion. It doesn't lie. It is a lion. It doesn't play tricks. It's a lion. So we understand lions, and we have agreements with lions. And so we don't have problems with lions. You'll notice the other African people here, the Tswana people, the the white people, the Chinese people, these are the people who are getting killed by lions, but the Bushmen don't have problems with lions. Second creation plays tricks on us. Well, I really got to thinking about that. And I was working with this other researcher, Carol, and we were talking about it. She says, you know, the more I think about this first and second creation thing, the more brilliant it is, first of all. She's like, imagine that. It's that simple. All your problems come from second creation. She says, but when I compare second creation in modern people to second creation in Bushmen, it's a whole different world. Because if you grew up in a village where first creation is your goal all the time. Stay in your first creation self. Second creation is trickster. Then they don't have conflict because conflict comes from second creation and they quickly dismiss it and they just focus on love, right? So they can even joke about their second creation trickster selves. They're really openly funny about it and it never builds up to become a problem. In modern times, we have nothing like that. You know, you can't even say that we grew up with a first creation awareness in modern times. We didn't even get the remedial basics of connection with first creation. And so we grew up in a world largely built by men and their egos. It's literally a man-made world and the legacy of that. And now we're living in that legacy, which is not just second creation, because if our entire life is spent in a built environment created from the egos and minds of men, what is our brain patterning on? Our second creation isn't anything like the Bushman's second creation. Theirs is more innocent and closer to first creation. Our second creation is more like fourth creation because the built world came from second creation minds 
into a world that we inhabit that shapes who we are, that's like third creation, fourth creation. There's no comparison. And that information stuff you're talking about is coming from fourth creation. It's not coming from first creation. Does that make sense? Makes absolute sense. When you think that from our second creation, we make other forms of intelligence that can then ramp that up exponentially until you don't even know what form of creation you're speaking to anymore and whether it's a human on the other side. It is a wholly different world. I'm so curious in the time that we have left, if you could share, how do people who live inside of the second, third, fourth, nth creation world, these practices of connection that they can cultivate? I know in Coyote's Guide, which is an excellent book that you've written that I've read many times, I'll put it in the show notes. You encourage people to take on animal forms. You give basic routines like the sit spot, and I'll link to things like that. But how do we touch on that first creation world? How do we get close to it? I love this idea that we can have these routines. We can imitate animal forms, for example, to get a little bit closer to that again. Maybe you could share just one or two practices that people can walk away with and feel into. And I know it's hard when it's taken out of the context of a longer workshop or conversation, but we love to try and leave people with a little something that they can do. I think um, the gift of bird language would be the place to start. It's a very powerful system, really. So easiest thing, if you live in a high rise, I was in LA in a high rise. And this man said to me, I can't really do bird language. I live in this high rise. I said, oh yeah, come over here with me. And we stood by the window and we looked out over the city and I said, do you see birds? He says, yeah, pigeons. So what? I'm like, right, let's watch these pigeons now. I promise you in five minutes, you're going to see something. So I watched the pigeons. I watched their body language and what they were doing and how they're flying. I'm like, they're pointing that way to the hawk. Just like the Bushmen have to know where the lion is, the pigeons have to know where the hawk is. I said, so let's see if we can find the hawk. Sure enough, the hawk was there that we could look in the distance and we could see it parked on the roof of a building. He's like, oh, my God, it does work in the city. I'm like, yes, I, no one can tell me, you know, unless there's no birds, you know, you can have this. So my suggestion to people is go outside your door, literally, and plop a chair outside your door and make sure it's within Wi-Fi range. <laughs> because if you have to be on meetings on Zoom or whatever, why not take that call? in the chair outside the door. And if that chair becomes your sit spot, so to speak, Tom Brown calls it a sacred area because if you build ropes with that place, powerful sacred transformations take place. Not from one day. One of the researchers said to me recently, you know, people, we've been asking them if they go to their sit spot and they'll say, oh yeah, I did that. I went to this class and I did that. When I got home, I did it for a little while. Yeah, that's great. I love the sit spot. When was the last time you went? Oh, it's been months. People treat it as something you do once or twice. I've been going to sit spot every day for 51 years. I do not tire of it. Every day it shows me something magical. And it's right outside my door, literally. So what does that mean? That means I can go there when I wake up in the morning before the sun is coming up. I can take my calls out there like the one I had to do before this one, talking to one of the researchers. I'm sitting out there talking about Pete with the researcher because Pete's standing in front of me. <laughs> He's like, wow, every time I talk to you on the phone, it's like there's a cast of characters that comes, you know, because I'm telling them about the birds and animals as we're in our meeting. I'm watching these things happen. Why not do that? Why not? If you go out to your sit spot every day and multiple times a day, if it's right outside the door, you'll go multiple times a day. Take your tea out there. You know what I mean? Just sit later in the day, Leave your phone inside for a while and just be out there for 20 minutes and just let your senses stretch to all the directions. Let your ears go out for the quietest sound in all directions and just sit in the quietness and feel the beauty of this place and feel yourself nourishing from it. And then make threads with the birds around you. You know, if a junco comes to your area tomorrow, is it the same junco or is it a different junco? Oh, it has that one feather that's off on the right side of its face. I recognize that junco. Give it a name. And watch that junco and watch how it interacts with the jays and watch what, when the squirrel makes this sound. What does the junco do? You know, and little by little, you're going to expand out and begin to recognize the patterns as you build ropes with the things around you. That would be a fantastic thing to do. And you could do it every day, multiple times a day and integrate it into your life. You could just right into your modern life, your busy modern life 
And you'll find the more you do your sit area, the less busy you get because your fifth creation mind stops spinning nonsense that tells you you have to do things that you really don't have to do. That goes away and all of a sudden time expands. And then the things that really matter start to come from your core instead of from your head. And that's where you want to be. You don't want to be trapped by the crazy thinking mind that is not even second creation, but like third, fourth creation now. You want to find your way to that core that is you and let that light come up and through. And nature will support you on that. And bird language is a fantastic way. Bird language sits spot, and I'm sure it's on the show notes, but What the Robin Knows is a great book to help you understand how to learn bird language. And it, it's really just about you making relationships with your place. That's what it is. John, your excitement is so contagious because I've been moving home. I haven't had a sit spot for about you know six, seven months. And your excitement just makes you want to be like, oh, I need my sit spot back. I need a sit spot. So thank you for sharing that. Um, before we close, you said your attention is going now to this newer project. Where can we find a little bit more about that? How can people engage with that? Is it something to be engaged with? Uh, it will be. Uh, you know, we're piloting and we have beta groups right now, so it's not out there yet. But, you know, tuck it away in the back of your mind, living connection first, and it's one ST. We're working with the early adopters, so to speak, to work through the kinks of building an effective cultural system online, basically a connection system online. It's not an easy thing to do, but we're making some huge progress and uh, I'm very excited about it. Keeps me going every day. It's what I'm really excited about because I don't want to die with this wisdom of mentoring that was passed to me. I want to make sure that it gets passed to the future. And that's what this is dedicated to. John, that's a very, very admirable sentiment. And yet I just have to say that even if you die today, I know that you have passed that on to many people already. So <laughs> <laughs> also you can be kind to yourself, but I admire the fire because the world definitely needs more of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet I know that you've already given a lot. So blessings. Thank you so much for having made the time. And it was so delightful to connect with you again after all these years. Right on, Alexa. Thank you so much for being a voice out there. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. And as I mentioned earlier, this concludes the first season of the show. Sign up to our email list on our website to stay tuned for when the next season will come out. That's it for me, Alexa Firmnish, your host on Life Worlds. I'll miss you and be well until the next time we meet. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>